So, so guys, remember when I was in India and we did a couple episodes on race and caste? I kind of actually, Jim, could you just take us back in the way back machine for like a minute of that episode? <laughs> In Scotland, 1833, Edinburgh, seven skulls just appeared. They were the skulls of convicted criminals who'd been executed under the direction of Captain William Sleeman, who was an up-and-coming British officer assigned to an area where there was a lot of what was known as thuggy activity or banditry. And Sleeman was convinced, like many other people at the time, that thugs ought to be considered a distinct race because of their secretiveness and intermarriage practices and that maybe criminality was inherent to their nature. So there we talked about these seven heads of executed members of what the British thought was an ethnicity of thugs, which, yes, is where the term thug comes from in English. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember. We kept saying that we were going to get back to talking about the thug heads, but we never did. So what happened? I, I know. It became like a running gag. We were like, thug heads, blah, well... The deal is, it took me about a year and a half, but I finally tracked them down. You found the thug heads? Uh-huh. I mean, I didn't go personally see them because they're in the Anatomical Museum at the University of Edinburgh, but I did uh. confirm that they're there. They got there because they were donated as part of the collections of the Edinburgh Phrenological Society in the late mm-hmm. 19th century. Phrenology. That there is an interesting corner of race science. We should do a, some future episode on phrenology. How about now? You want to talk about phrenology now? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm Eric. I'm Jim. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. So phrenology. Phrenology. That's the study of the shapes of people's heads. And it was really popular in the 19th century because people believed that those bumps on our heads corresponded with aspects of personality and behavior. So, like, if you had a big bump on the back of your head, as I happen to have, and yes, I've looked this up online, that's supposed to mean that you have an unusually strong attachment to your children, because supposedly that area of the brain was associated with this trait. Okay, I had no idea. Yeah, and and so it was one of the tools that was used in comparative anatomy to try to detect differences between races, which Mm. is why we're going to talk about it here, right? Yeah, that's a good good point. Fortunately for yours truly, word on the street is that you actually know quite a bit about phrenology, Eric. Is that I right? Have, I have read many heads. Actually, I don't, I don't know what the average amount of knowledge is about phrenology, but I've, I've, I've done the reading. As okay, good, good. So let's do a little background because I feel like phrenology is one of those things most people have heard of but know very little about. That is true. There are umpteen misunderstandings when it comes to phrenology. And Man, when you add that together with the discussion of race, just like we did with race and medicine, there's just tons and tons of misunderstandings. Well, let's begin with something that I think everyone agrees on, which is that phrenology is a pseudoscience. Oh, see, there's... What? What? (laughs) See, that's the problem. So no one working in any area thinks that they are doing pseudoscience. They always think that they are doing actual science. It's only in retrospect, it's the fault of us historians that label stuff pseudoscience. So in this case, phrenologists believed something that I think a lot of people would agree with, which is that human behavior was due entirely to the physical structure of the brain itself. All right. All right. Okay. So 
in retrospect, I get it. We think it's a pseudoscience now. But actually, when you put it like that, this idea of that human behaviors due to the physical structure of the brain, that actually doesn't sound particularly far off from what we think today. Exactly. The, the phrenologists got off track, not because they were doing pseudoscience, but because they were taking their cues from early embryologists. So embryologists in the 18th century and into the 19th century observed that mammalian skull joints gradually fuse during gestation and early life. If you've been around any baby, you know this. Right, like they the thought soft spot. That, exactly. Right. So they thought that the skull casing during development would just take the shape that the brain matter inside the skull had already set out. So if you mix that belief about the order in which things form in the gestating and early child or little teeny creature or whatever, now mix this up with the notion that human behavior is completely based on the structure of the brain. Oh, and... I get it. I get it. Right. So human behavior is like literally written into the shape of the brain, which in turn gets mirrored by the shape of the skull, which conforms to the shape of the brain. Right. Precisely. You nailed okay. it. So those early promoters of phrenology in the 19th century saw themselves as doing cutting edge science. The, the guy who kind of develops the whole thing, even though he doesn't coin the word phrenology itself, was a German physician named Franz Josef Gall in the 18th century, the 1700s. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what Gall really contributes is that he says, look, the brain isn't a single thing. Think about how weird that statement would have been at the time. I like to think of the metaphor of balloons, especially when I talk to my students. Thinking at mm -hmm. the time was that the, the brain was like a balloon. Now, right. what Gall said is that the brain is not like a single balloon. It's like a bunch of balloons, 27 mm -hmm. different balloons, in fact. And each of the balloons in the bunch was a different size and a different color and so on. He called these the organs of the mind. Okay. All right. So that's cool. But but if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it the Scottish lawyer, George Combe, who actually made phrenology mainstream? And actually, I know about this because when I was looking for the thug skulls, I discovered that he was the man who founded the Edinburgh Phrenological Society. Yeah, that's a good find. And, and in fact, the way that George Combe gets involved in phrenology is is a really funny story. So 1816, George Combe is actually a huge skeptic about phrenology, and he goes to a dinner party in Edinburgh where one of Gaul's chief disciples was the guest of honor. Hmm. So Combe goes in specifically to mock the speaker, <laughs> but then the speaker pulls out a brain and begins to dissect it right there at the dinner party. <laughs> I, I, I mean... That's what I do at my dinner parties. I don't know about you. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So it's not weird for you, but for everybody else, it's weird. So, <laughs> and as he's do doing this dissection, he points out these different organs, these different sections in the brain, each supposedly corresponding with a particular personality trait. And so, the George and his brother Andrew, who's also at the meeting, they immediately convert from being skeptical, even jeering about phrenology, to being these huge fanboys. And in fact, they become these huge promoters of phrenology in Britain. They travel around giving lectures, writing articles, and then they eventually found the Edinburgh Phrenological Society. Wither the thugheads. Exactly. This is how we came full circle. Thugheads. Okay, so now let's just tie it up to race. Exactly. Although, yeah, so that's really complicated. The, the phrenologists, like many people of their time, were totally racist, but... On slavery, 
there was a surprising wide spectrum of belief among phrenologists. So from the beginning, phrenologists, especially in Scotland, were staunch supporters of abolitionism. And that was well before it was a broader movement in the UK or anywhere else. Okay, so how does that work if phrenology is being used to promote racist aims, but these phrenologists are abolitionists? Well, it's because everybody has different bumps. Elaborate. (laughs) (laughs) I know. All right, well, if you think about it, what phrenology offers is at least the possibility of individuality. Hmm. And once you start thinking of people as individuals with different sets of bumps, it's a little harder to just lump everybody together in a category like race. And it gets even more complicated. So imagine that you find that somebody who is enslaved has similar bump patterns to the person that's enslaving them. Mm. That, that totally messes the whole, like we're separated physically into different species thing up. And in fact, this is how Franz Josef Gall and some of the early European phrenologists viewed things. But well, when phrenology got exported to America, let's just say it's much harder to find phrenologists in America who didn't use phrenology to defend slavery. So for example, Um, There's a physician in Kentucky named Charles Caldwell. His views were actually pretty mild. They were also very popular. He wrote a book just called Elements of Phrenology. He just used phrenology to offer excuses for why slavery didn't do any harm to the enslaved. Hmm. But I've also seen plenty of books from the time. Um, Like there's an 1833 book by another physician named Richard Colfax I bet you can guess what this book is about just based on the title. Here's the title. Evidence Against the Views of the Abolitionists Consisting of Physical and Moral Proofs of the Natural Inferiority of the Negroes. Sounds very mainstream. What's that about? Yeah, exactly, right? So the phrenologists in the United States were not necessarily in support of abolitionism. And, And in fact... Interestingly, one of the most important early moments in our discussion of phrenology and race was in the 1830s. It's um, centered around what was called the Society for the Colonization of Free People of Color of America, which is better known as the American Colonization Society, or ACS. Uh, Wait, wait, colonization? What are the Americans doing colonizing in the 1830s? They'd just been a colony. I know. We barely ever talk about this in American history, but... Beginning in the 1820s, some very wealthy and influential Americans were actually working to move free blacks out of the United States and into West Africa. In fact, that's where the country of Liberia comes from. The ACS made it. Oh, okay. So was this like the beginning of abolitionism to try to undo slavery by sending people to a a supposedly less racist place? That's, I mean, that's not a bad guess. In fact, um, some of the trustees of the American Colonization Society tried to sell it exactly that way. It was a gradual part of what they hoped would be emancipation one day. Hmm. But, and there's a huge but, the trustees of the ACS were men like Supreme Court Justice Bushrod Washington. That was the nephew of George Washington. Nepotism is real. Uh, And even James Monroe, who, of course, would soon be president, and Andrew Jackson, who was president about a decade after that, they were all trustees of the ACS. Okay, so big guns, but why are you sounding so skeptical? Yeah, the the but is because every single one of those men were slave owners. Oh, 
Well, there you go. So they pretended that their intentions were philanthropic and humanitarian to gradually end slavery, to make things better for blacks who were being discriminated against. But by the 1830s, after hundreds of free blacks had already made the journey to this brand new country of Liberia, two things became apparent. First, the slave-owning elites and even some of the anti-slavery supporters in the ACS, well, they were not at all interested in helping the new settlers in Liberia. It's not particularly surprising, given what you just told us. I'm not a racist, but... Exactly. And it's even more than that. In fact, when you dig a little deeper into their records, you see that the entire ACS project was rotten to the core. Most of the free blacks that were sent to Liberia were not themselves descended from enslaved ancestors in that part of West Africa. Liberia was just the cheapest place for a sailing ship to land from the United States. Mm. The provisions sent were very poor. The funding, even though these men were all very wealthy, were not. it was basically non-existent. About half of the people who went on these trips to Liberia died of disease, and more and more people kept coming. And then did you notice that they were sending free blacks? Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? I so was going to ask. This is by design. The slave-owning trustees of the ACS, what they were really interested in was pushing the free blacks that were living along the borders of the slaveholding South to leave the country intentionally to discourage uprisings and slave rebellions. Okay. And, and so there were uprisings happening? I mean, there were some, but the individuals migrating to Liberia were often fleeing for their lives from Northern cities. Mm. Here's, here's a, for instance, um, so Cincinnati, Ohio, bordering slave state Kentucky, mm-hmm. multiple times over the 1830s, newly immigrated Irish laborers in Cincinnati actually just openly attacked the neighborhoods of free blacks in Cincinnati. And the interesting thing is that every single time that one of these um, riots happened, at least that's what they called them at the time, the ACS would sweep in and encourage Cincinnati blacks to immigrate to Liberia. And hmm. they were very successful. About a thousand Cincinnatians of African descent did leave the United States over the decade. And not surprisingly, despite the ACS marketing, there was almost no support for those who made it to Liberia. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is that in the 1830s, abolitionist leaders did catch on and they began to loudly condemn the ACS as an elaborate cover to actually keep slavery going on by disrupting things like the Underground Railroad and by exiling free blacks who might organize rebellions. Wow, that is that is sinister. Okay, um, but getting back to phrenology, what does this have to do with phrenology? I know, I know. We walked away from phrenology there for a second. But what's interesting is that it was the Scottish lawyer George Combe and his other phrenology buddies at the Edinburgh Phrenological Society that began to defend the ACS right when it was being attacked as this kind of scam supported by slave-owning elites. So in 1833, it was the Edinburgh Phrenological Society who published an article that, while it strongly condemned slavery, said that the job of the American Colonization Society was really to funnel American blacks back to where they came from, which, of course, it wasn't where they came from. They didn't come Mm -hmm. from Liberia. Mm -hmm. North America, according to the Edinburgh Phrenological Society phrenologists, was supposed to be a white man's kingdom. It was supposed to be an extension of Northern Europe. The science showed, they said, the integration between the races was impossible. Just check out the bumps. Even Mm -hmm. if emancipation did come, 
it could never lead to social equality between these races. The skull shapes just showed this, they said. Okay, so they're using phrenology to say, like, a lot of the stuff we've already talked about on this podcast, that miscegenation is going to lead to downfall or and, and that there's no possibility of social equality. That's what you're saying, right? Exactly. Totally. Yeah, Which, you got it exactly right. Okay, and that's sounds a lot like what white, nat- white nationalists are still saying. And yeah. Not all that different either from what Thomas Jefferson said in Notes on the State of Virginia, which we've also talked about on this podcast. Yeah, the the U.S. is going to have to stay a white man's country. They're going to have to deport Mm -hmm. everybody who's not white. Actually, Joe, you're going to love this. Let me um, just take a quote from that 1833 paper by the Edinburgh Phrenological Society. Um, Here's the quote. I love quotes. I love (laughs) when you read them. Exactly. The large brain of Europe controls the small brain of India by an irresistible moral influence. In other words, um, they said that head shape meant that races were fixed and that races were incompatible. Here's another quote. The white is endowed with not only a larger volume, but a better organization of brain. Oh, God. So they had this complicated idea. According to the phrenologist, Liberia was the beachhead from which the emancipated blacks would act like missionaries, and they would convert the entire continent of Africa into an industrious Christian kind of European colony. I mean, did anyone buy this? Well, there was at least one prominent American scientist who we've talked about previously, Samuel George Morton. As Uh we mentioned, when we began our series on race and intelligence, the Phrenologist Combe tied brain size to intelligence in his appendix to Morton's Crania Americana. While Morton was busy comparing the sizes of brains of different racial groups, Combe points out in this appendix that some Europeans had the largest brains and were therefore distinguished for great aggregate force of mind, animal, moral, and intellectual. He especially praised the Teutonic race compared with the Hindu among nations, just like the quote that Eric just read, as examples of of the relationship between brain size and national character. Yeah, so when you look at it in this context, the, the phrenologists from Edinburgh, they fit not only with ordinary sorts of scientific racists like Morton and Josiah Clark Knott, but they actually even fit with abolitionists. Yeah, and that's weird. it's what it's weird. Like the phrenologists condemned slavery. In fact, the Edinburgh phrenologists called slavery, quote, an enormous moral and political evil, a scourge to the Americans back, which will goad him and his children and his children's children. So the Edinburgh phrenologists assured everyone that the ACS was actually an anti-slavery society. And that basically convinced the white abolitionists. But their defense was really about white nationalism. And I think you're right, Joe. This is the origin of an argument that white nationalists still use in the 21st century. It was about making America white again. <laughs> but America never was white. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point, yes. But, but it's always about colonizing an already peopled place, right? And speaking of which, did you guys catch the references to India in those two quotes you both read a little bit ago? Yep. Uh, They must be talking about your thug heads, right? Yes. Yes. Let's say they are. Back to the thug heads. Thug heads. (laughs) Tell Um, us more about thugs. Right. Okay. So I did do some more digging about this along with figuring out how they got to Edinburgh. And uh, it turns out these seven skulls came from the public executions of several, seven men who'd been labeled thugs 
in the era when the British were busy trying to biologize the idea of thuggy, which is the, I don't know, the adjective for the type of behavior that thugs were engaged in. And and that's going to become a very important point because uh, the ideas about caste that were circulating at the time in the work of people like Herbert Hope Risley and others. And here's where I direct people to listen to our three episodes on race in India. Ooh, and here's the part where I hope there's a peacock sound. (laughs) Oh, no! You guys are trying to derail me. Okay, Okay, sorry. (laughs) Listen, so because of this caste and race conflation that was going on in India at the time, it was instigated by the British, right? We've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Um, There was this widespread assumption that people from one line of work would also be a biologically distinct, isolated lineage because of the way that caste endogamy worked and because of the way that castes were often tied to occupation. Okay? So the thinking was that Indian castes were these pure races because of caste endogamy, and the thugs, they became one such imagined group in the minds of the British, almost like a caste of their own. I can see that. Now, when when we use that word thug, we sort of mean that um, you're – like a low intelligence guy who's hired to beat up people. And for some reason, they always say, ah, clabias right before they do it, right? (laughs) And yes, that stereotype might have some relation to what the British thought. So they they believe that the thugs were hereditary criminals. These individuals were from parts of mostly rural North India, where it was common for local elites, landholders, to keep bandits on retainer to defend their lands in this sort of patron-client relationship that's actually really well documented in historical records. Kind of like Robin Hood. Thugs would huh. associate themselves with travelers, then they'd murder them and take their money, except they, they didn't give it to the poor. Like Robin Hood, they gave it to the landholder who employed them. No, that's not as nice. <laughs> no, it's, it's not nice. Right? The word thug actually means roughly deceiver in Hindi, and the British saw this thuggy behavior as a a big cultural blight that needed to be snuffed out in order to modernize India and keep their colony, you know, sort of on the right moral track. But they also thought it was hereditary and it's clearly not hereditary, right? (laughs) No, no, not at all. In fact, if you just scratch the surface of who those thugs were who were being executed, along with the seven individuals I mentioned, there's record of a lot of diversity amongst people who are doing this profession There's religious diversity, so there are Muslims and Hindus, not to mention various Hindu castes that were involved. But the thing is this, because family members were often together when they were caught and rounded up by the British in this subversive activity, the British assumed that this thuggishness must be hereditary, that it it ran in families, especially because so many other occupations in India at that time were based around caste. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, And so in the era of phrenology, British scientists believed that maybe thug heads would provide like a wonderful natural laboratory for learning what the brains of congenital criminals must look like. Uh, I can see the beginnings of criminology would have loved to look look at an example like this. Absolutely. So the idea was that thugs were so violent and so deceitful that their thug heads would have like extreme representations of qualities like violence or deceitfulness that would be readable on their skulls. Oh, and and I bet they thought that demonstrating this by having these actual thug heads would help them promote hmm. phrenology everywhere. So I, I can totally see why the Edinburgh Phrenological Society would definitely want to get some thug heads. Yes, right. So these seven North Indian men, they were tried between 1831 and 1832 for a murder that took place like a decade and a half earlier. 
that seems um late let's say and yes you're right you know the trial was probably a foregone conclusion because yeah. it was part of this larger very public british campaign to eradicate thuggy behavior as they were trying to modernize the empire this this particular case of this execution seemed pretty sketchy from the beginning there was a guy dr henry harper spry of the bengal medical service he oversaw the care of over 100 prisoners who were going to all be tried together at this time. Uh. And the whole lot was hanged in mass after being convicted, and their bodies were ritually burned. But just before they were burned, Spry got a hold of seven heads. Uh-huh. And it's interesting that, right, that there were about 100 people hanged, but it seems that Spry sort of handpicked the heads of those who seemed the most thuggish. Interesting. Yeah. So so as far as we can tell from the historical records, he just got someone to collect their heads before they were burned and, and just like let them sit out and become defleshed on their own, which is gross, right? <laughs> it's it's better that... than having beetles eat the flesh off, which is another way of doing it. There well, I'm go. assuming that there were some beetles involved. I don't know. Is that but... <laughs> traditional? Do we know? Is that is that traditional? Is that disrespectful? Do we it's know? It's very disrespectful. Okay. Deeply so it's a... It's another British thing. It's like it's another really, really deeply disrespectful thing. to okay. to both Hindu and Muslim sort of burial or or disposal of dead people practices. Okay, so so he just left them out there. Then he sent them along with life histories he'd written up of their former owners. Because remember, these guys had been in captivity for a really long time, so they had collected right. a fair amount of information about their lives. Huh. So he sent the skulls with these life histories to Edinburgh. At the time, there was a rival group in London who also wanted them. Huh. And they were kind of fighting over who was going to get these skulls, this, these valuable sort of uh, specimens. But um, Lord John Swinton, who is the chief secretary of the British government in India, decided in favor of Edinburgh because he himself had recently become a member of the Edinburgh Phrenological Society. <laughs> of course. Huh. Sounds like the Senate case for impeachment. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was clearly, uh, I mean, rigged, right? So the skulls <laughs> arrived in 1833 in Edinburgh, and a guy named Robert Cox, who was actually George Combs' nephew, oh, yeah. he, he did the, the analysis on these seven skulls. And then um, Henry Harper Spry, the Bengal Medical Service guy, published a paper in 1834 that combined Cox's results with his own. All right, what does that paper say, the 1834 paper? Well, it's a weird one. So first of all, Cox admits that there's really no phrenological evidence of exaggerated destructiveness in these. Okay. <laughs> that's not what I was going to That's not what I thought you were going to say. Okay. Right. Well, that's because you're not a very good phrenologist. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Apparently. That's true. Uh, so instead, Cox and Spry found the skulls were deficient in the conscientiousness part of the brain. Uh-huh. And they had what he referred to as an exaggerated sense of filiality, which is the thing I was talking about at the beginning with the bump on your back of your head. Oh, yeah. So they interpreted this supposed deficit in the conscientiousness bump and this exaggeration of the filiality bump as meaning that thugs were packish, but generally immoral. And so they were killing people not out of sheer bloodthirst, they said in this paper, but for financial motives that would protect their families, right? So it was almost out of like the sense of filiality that they were doing this. Yeah. So they may have been destructive, but they weren't primally destructive. Nevertheless, the paper concludes that these heads perfectly represent the prototypical criminal skull. Huh. Sounds like a lot of modern science to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a mixed result. 
Despite that sort of equivocation in the paper, that work had the dual effect of both solidifying the idea that thuggy, thuggish behavior was indeed a heritable quality and of reinforcing the validity of phrenology more generally. At this time, around the time the paper came out, there were all these lurid stories of thuggy violence circulating in Britain. and, And this paper just added scientific gravity to that designation. Thugs were biologically determined to be violent, and it solidified the backwardness of Indian society in the minds of the British colonizers, too. Oh, which, of course, of course, then it just justifies the continued occupation of India by the British. And and that's at the very moment in the 1830s when people were really beginning to question what Britain's role should be in Central Asia. And the other thing is, I can really hear this white man's burden idea percolating up through your story. Mm-hmm. So, as the physical anthropologist, I've got to ask about the bones. Did these did these skulls basically disappear then? No. Weirdly enough, they continue to play a role well into the 20th century in uh, research. Wow. Yeah, I can see this too because phrenology really goes. It dips for a while, but then it really revives again in the late Victorian period. Which is also right at the time that anthropology was becoming a field of study. Exactly. And in fact, we even have a person that acts as a good transition in that later period, too. The uh, the guy was also a physician. His name was John Beddow. I've never read any of his work. Yeah. I've never even heard of him. It's I didn't think that anybody would actually have heard of him, and I doubt that he's ever appeared in any sort of history of anthropology classes. But it turns out that he was one of the founding members of the Ethnological Society of London, and he was president of the Anthropological Society, and he was one of the first presidents of the Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland, and he wrote field manuals for ethnographers all over Europe. He was the wow. one who began using statistics and population studies in ethnography. That was you know, decades before anybody else was doing it. Hmm. And later on, he founded archaeological societies, including the ones responsible for preserving megalithic monuments like Stonehenge and Avebury. So he did a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Like many of these Victorian anthropologists, he had, um, he he did have a medical background. He was um, attendant at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. He was assistant surgeon in the Crimean War in the 1850s, which was a really brutal war. In fact, before leaving for Crimea, he was involved in the phrenological community. And in 1846, he actually used phrenological categories when conducting the first ethnography of the West of England that anybody had ever done. Hmm. So he tried to correlate hair color and eye color and discover what he called the original races of the British Isles. He later reported that he found a very pure and very light-eyed, quote, British bronze race, he says. And then he, at the same time, finds this other lesser race, which he associated mostly with lower class artisans. Mm -hmm. And of course, that race, the lower class one, he found it to be darker. (laughs) But Uh he also found that that lower class race had more babies than the very pure and light eyed British bronze race. So there's all this race and phrenology stuff in there. But the reason why I even brought him up is that Beto is also the guy who develops what's called the index of nigrescence hmm. in the 1860s. So he uses the phrenological principles that he had learned before he went to the Crimean War to um, basically sort people into two classes, the prognathus and the orthognathus. Man, I can't say those words. The, Did I, I mean, say them right? <laughs> Close. Uh, 
prog- yeah. prognathus and orthognathus. Ortho- yeah, that's it. Faces. So the prognathus are the ones that have sort of protruding faces, and the orthognathus are the ones that have less prominent jaws. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So the Irish and the Welsh and Celts, he called those prognathus. <laughs> pro- prog- prognathus. 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 Yeah. Which is interesting because he related them to Cro-Magnon man. And he also said that that was Africanoid. But English men of genius, he said, were orthognathus. So he linked the skull shape and their moral and social aptitudes into these different categories that became fixed categories in anthropology. Mm. And some of his closest correspondents were people that we've talked about in this podcast before, like Paul Topinard and Paul Broca, and it's through Topinard and Broca that these phrenological ideas came from Beto to another person that you may have heard of, the criminologist Cesar Lombroso. Yeah, I do feel like I've heard that name before. Yeah, he kicked my ass on my MA exam. But, <laughs> what? But then, then I went back and what? found out that he's the founding father of criminal anthropology. Huh. And he also had a strong influence on my academic grandfather, Ernest oh. Hooten, who then spent a lot of time and energy trying to find anthropometric measurements that would allow us to discriminate between criminals and good guys like us. Huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so is he the one who said that genius and madness were sort of close together? Yeah, he probably borrowed that from a lot of people before him, but he also had anthropometric measurements to show it, or at least so he claimed, like the like the divergent big toe of prostitutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that's one of his things, yeah. So what's crazy about Lombroso is that we're at the turn of the 20th century here, yeah. and yet he doubles down on the phrenology stuff from all the way back from Franz Josef Gall. He brings in Beto's index of negrescent stuff that I just talked about. He also brings in statistics developed by Francis Galton. He brings in the face anthropometry stuff of Topinard and Broca. And he was really clear about what all of these different measurements and things meant. So let me read a quote from his 1891 book, which was called Man of Genius. Genius. Ooh, quote time. Here's the quote. The influence of race is as visible in genius as it is in insanity. There's that thing you were talking about a second ago, Joe. Yeah. uh Education counts for little. Heredity counts for much. By education, you can make bears dance, but you can never create a man of genius. I'll just take a dancing bear. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Okay. Okay. So clearly Lombroso is is pretty solidly on board with biological determinism here. And if I remember correctly from the little that I know about him, this this worked for him. He not only created the field of scientific criminology, but I think he was the one who created the category of the criminally insane. Exactly. And and governments across the world built a ton of asylums for the criminally insane based on Lombroso's work. And what's more, I think he advocated for Galton's ideas, that is Francis Galton's ideas of a front and side profile photograph to be taken of every prisoner, specifically because they thought they'd be able to pick out the biologically determined criminal from the incidental criminal by the shape of their heads. Uh So he gives us the mugshot. (laughs) How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So this Phrenology stuff really had some lasting societal effects, we can say. Lombroso's followers thrived under Mussolini's regime, and that biological determinism stuff helped 
scientifically justify fascism, among other things. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say also that it's stuck around in lots of different corners of science. Getting back to uh, the good old thug skulls, which is like my baby here, in 1906, an anatomist named William Turner reanalyzed those thug skulls, which were still being kept in Edinburgh. And he was trying to map Aryan race or lack thereof onto those skulls. Uh, Turner found no evidence of consistent traits or or marks or stigmata that could reliably identify criminality across the skulls. But he did muse about how they could help shed light on the new science of race. And so the story of phrenology ended up blending into the history of the mythical Aryan invasion of India, which we've also talked about. Holy cow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That, that's beautiful. That, that's another great example of what we've been talking about throughout our entire podcast, how something as ridiculous as phrenology played a role in the solidification of scientific racism right on into the 20th century. Yeah. And weirdly, tendrils of phrenology have hung around well into the middle of the 20th century. <laughs> even. You don't say. Seriously, though, have you, have you heard of the Harvard Study of Adult Development? Yeah, it was called the Grant Study back when I was a child. Oh, yeah. So in the late 1930s, Arlie Bach and Clark Heath, who were the two physicians in the Harvard University School of Hygiene who initiated this study, they started the longest longitudinal study of adult men by nabbing 268 Harvard University men comprised the sample of the work. Uh, I think it's still going on today, 70 years after it started. And so most of the subjects are still anonymous. But we know about quite a few of them, like a reporter discovered that John F. Kennedy was one of their subjects (laughs) because that particular record ended in the early 1960s and has been sealed until 2040. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) Um, So Bach and Heath did this comprehensive anthropometric measurement stuff with all of their subjects, including, you guessed it, the same face and skull measurements promoted by Lombroso and others. So, so all the phrenology stuff from way back in the 19th century is still hanging on well into the 20th century. Yes. But there is one point of this whole thing that we haven't really stressed, I think, as much as we should. And, and this part is important because it has really big ramifications for how we still think about race. That study, which was funded by W.T. Grant, which is why it was called the Grant Study, the one that Bach was running, it was set up to find a supposedly normal man's measurements, like the mm. default man. Uh, But note, they only worked with pretty successful white Harvard men. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What you're trying to say is that we're looking at people who we think of as the normal. So they're unmarked categories. Exactly. And it's really telling that after World War II, they expanded the study to also include a comparison class, which they referred (laughs) to as inner city Bostonians. Take a guess who had better health outcomes over the study. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. So this all gets built into the contemporary sort of obsession with actually like with happiness studies, by the way, which is interesting. I mean, I guess that just affirms basically what we've been saying since the very beginning of this podcast. There's historical racial prejudices and and they're basically woven deeply into many aspects of our lives, even into studies that we respect, like this Harvard study. We don't even realize the ways in which these things are woven in. Totally. Yeah, except I had to measure skulls all over Samoa because of these bastards. So, I guess you, you know that better than most of them. But it's it's just crazy to me that there's all these little teeny things that we just assume die yeah. out, or we we call them pseudoscientific, or we we just dismiss them. But they they keep they play just a root, yeah yeah they, they even form out. our whole categories that we do other analyses by. 
Yeah, well, okay, guys. I I think we're at at a at the end of the thugs. So uh, <laughs> yay, we covered the thugs finally. It was fascinating, uh, uh, right? It's fascinating. Yeah. Hey, and you know, it did take us an awful long time to pay off on that uh, buried lead back uh, in yeah. the first ra- first India race episode. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> We made it. We got there. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Race. Please share comments or questions or concerns with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and everywhere. Everywhere. And like us too, because we like to be liked. Because we like to be liked. (laughs) Because it's a thing. Happy holidays. Watch out for thugs. Okay.